Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence, we heal by speaking out. So today I am with my friend, my sister, Nikki Pappas, and I was first on her podcast, Broadening the Narratives. And Nikki, would you please introduce yourself to listeners? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It is such an honor. And as we were talking about, Mm -hmm. I've been binging your podcast and loving it. And you're so great at this. So it's an honor to be here. So thank you for having me on. My name is Nikki Pappas and I am 32 years old right now. And my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm a writer and the author of a recently finished memoir, As Familiar as Family. And I have a podcast, as Tasha said, the Broadening the Narrative podcast, which I started in 2020 to connect with people who are broadening the narratives I was taught within white evangelicalism. I have three young children who are currently ages seven, five, and four with Steven, who is just my study partner in all of the chaos for the past 12 years, because we, I was like literally a baby when we got married and, uh, that's something we can talk about today too, since I think it really ties in and yeah, in all areas of my life, I just really want to spark hope in the world around me to, have an embodied faith now and really move us one step closer to what I think is on earth as it is in heaven now and not one day, whatever that looks like, but rather now. Oh, what a beautiful introduction. So your recently finished book, As Familiar as Family, you're discussing this cultish environment and and what it took to leave that toxic Christianity Could you tell listeners a little bit more about the book, expected release date? Who are the people that you really had in mind? So my elevator pitch, if you will, of my book is that As Familiar as Family explores how I was groomed for toxic religion and how I got out. And in my memoir, I'm really going all the way back to examining the ways that abuse was normalized in my family, because when I see that experiencing abuse as love, like what that did to me, that really led me to these unhealthy relationships and ways of viewing myself which sort of primed the grounds for some of the theology that I would later encounter. And so then my journey led me to this church where I was a member there for 10 years and was directly spiritually abused by the lead pastor there at the end of my time there. And so I really wanted to chronicle my journey into and out of these toxic relationships and religion. And this journey for me began once I understood how the power dynamics, the narcissism and the emotional detachment in the church I was a part of were as familiar as family. So that's where the title comes from is being able to make those connections to how much it was, it was just familiar to me. And I was able to nestle very easily into my place there. And the thing is, I know I'm not the only one 
who's experiencing that. So when people read my book, I want them to feel anger toward abuse and toward injustice. You know, I also want them to commit to dismantling systems of oppression, all systems of oppression, specifically ones being perpetuated by the white evangelical church. And I want them to think about their own lives and where they've been influenced by this, because you don't have to be a Christian in this nation to be influenced by this thinking. And so being able to examine how how have I been influenced by this Mm -hmm. and how maybe, you know, especially for more privileged people, like how am I perpetuating this same toxicity? And so everything continues on track. Uh, My book would be expected to be released in September of this year because that's when my birthday is. And I was hoping to release it in honor of my 33rd birthday. And I actually just set up a website, NikkiPappas.com, where people can, in addition to the pre-orders that people made through my Kickstarter, they'd be able to do some pre-orders before it comes out in September. So yeah, to say who I'm hoping to reach, I really want to reach people who've been harmed by toxic relationships and religion and I want my book to facilitate healing for those people, and I want them to feel like they aren't alone. I also want to empower them to leave anything toxic in their lives or anything that just isn't helping them anymore. And, you know, my ideal audience would be people who have experienced spiritual abuse, but I was even thinking about people who don't think they've been spiritually abused. I would love for them to read this book because if they can make that step of reading this book, it might help them sort of understand some of the ways that they too in these systems are being harmed or harming others. And they might be able to see how they interact with and perpetuate toxic theology. I cannot wait to get my copy. I cannot wait to read it. (laughs) I'm so excited. Yes, I am too. Thank you so much for backing my Kickstarter. That was just uh, one of those. I just cried kind of like seeing your name and just feeling so supported. So thank you. Absolutely. Um, It's, it really did inspire me to see you and I I just love you dearly. So of course I'm going to support. Anytime we write our our own story, or even in the telling of our own story, there's, there's some fear, some challenges. Um, what were some of those fears and, and challenges that, that you had to kind of work through mm-hmm. during your writing process? Yeah. Well, I would say to start with the challenges, I found it really challenging in the editing of my book and trying to figure out what do I include and what do I take out? And as my editor said, save for a future book, you know, cause mm-hmm. it's like, there's this pressure of this is my one chance and, mm-hmm. and instead being like, okay, no, there could be more books. It's okay to save this. Uh, so I would say that was a huge challenge because I had beta readers read a copy back in February and after they gave me their feedback, I knew, okay, I need to add some more to this. Well, then I added too much. It was like, no, one's going to read this. <laughs> like it's too long. Mm-hmm. And so then, yeah, like trying to figure out what really touches the main story I'm trying to tell so that I don't, yeah, have too much going there. But I would say it was also challenging to include parts of my story that are unflattering to me. It was very hard for my ego to do that, but I want to go ahead and like shout out your book, mm-hmm. What Children Remember, as being a real, I know, you know, we can talk about other books that inspired my writing, but I wanted to go ahead and say that because the stories that you included, the fact that you told the truth, told your truth in mm-hmm. such 
vulnerable ways without caring how it's going to affect the person who you're writing about. Mm -hmm. But you also wrote stories where you owned some parts of yourself that would be easy to be like, well, I don't need to put that in here. But I think it just makes you a more three-dimensional human. It just shows your humanity in this really beautiful way. And so that inspired me, but then that's challenging because then I'm like, oh, uh, am I really going to write about certain things that make people, will it then, yeah, just caring too much at times, what people are going to think of me (laughs) was quite a challenge. Yeah, that makes sense. And Nikki, I'd face the same challenges, what to include, what to take out. And for me, and I didn't have anybody early on that I was working with to kind of help me figure that out. But so I thought, I got to put it all in here because I'm this may be my only book. (laughs) Yeah. But then it was like, I did have to take some stuff out because it can't be a 500 page book. So (laughs) that was, yes, that is exactly what I, yep. Stephen, my partner literally was like, uh, cause you know how Barack Obama, president Barack Obama's book is so thick. He's like, you're not president Barack Obama. Like people don't want to read a book that I think about your life. Right. Yeah. So, so I totally understand that. And I, I really felt, I really resonated, you know, when you said, we're just kind of thinking about what, what will other people think? And what is my heart saying in this? What is, and my heart was to tell my story. And I got to wake up and go to bed with me every day. So am I okay with everything that I put in there? And if I'm coming from a space of love, if that's my motive, it's okay. And I think that, that, that your book will read the same. Wanting to honor yourself and also say for anybody out there that's experiencing the same, like we're out here, you're not alone. Yeah. And I think that connects to like the IFS work that you do even, right? Mm-hmm. Like and approaching those parts of ourselves and our stories with curiosity and compassion. Mm-hmm. And that's been so much of my journey too. And realizing like I'm accountable to myself first and am I okay with what I put in this book? Am and, I? Yeah. 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 And I think too, scarcity when it comes to, mm-hmm. I got to keep it all in here, all the stories. I think our scarcity, capitalistic driven society, instead of living from a place of abundance and possibilities, <laughs> you know, and it's like, I don't want to live that way anymore. And we even talked about this at the last book club too, like the difference I feel in my body after certain webinars I attend versus other webinars I attend. And the editor that I'm working with, I, aligned with her value of not promoting scarcity because Mm -hmm. I do not want to try to sell books from a scarcity mindset Mm -hmm. or a fear-based or shame or manipulation at all. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know that kind of all came up for me too. Yes, absolutely. And to hear you name IFS, first of all, to remember that (laughs) I'm like, oh, you really have been listening to my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Because my, I feel like my whole life is IFS. I'm, it feels like kind of a cult in and of itself. So anyways, and you talked about earlier that there were parts of your story that you kind of didn't know whether you, you know, should I talk about this or, or shouldn't I? Um, and how did you determine which ones to to include or or which ones to leave out? Yeah, if you could kind of talk about that, that decision-making. Well, I can say that, any stories about sexual abuse and violence that I experienced, they were hard to write about. And Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure how much of that will end up in the final printed copy. I still have a final read through to do. Um, 
And so, yeah, there were these decisions to make. Uh, For example, I wrote about the grooming I experienced at the hands of my grandfather because I wanted to, you know, my beta readers were kind of left wanting more in a way because I hadn't included a lot of stuff in what they'd read. So to them, they're wondering, well, how did you end up at this church? You know, and I just, I was like, okay, well, let me, let me add some more. So now my editor is reading the current version of it where I have put stuff about my grandfather um, grooming me first for sexual abuse and examining those tactics of how I looked like a favored granddaughter and even someone else that you had on your podcast, her story, like resonating so much with it. I wish I had written down who that was, but Mm -hmm. yeah. And just seeing how, oh, this puppy and this $100 bill and this promise to buy me a car when I can drive, those were all intended to bribe me and to gain my loyalty and secure my silence. Mm-hmm. And so writing that story was hard when we talk about fear as well with that. I remember one of my cousins who, when I told her about our grandfather sexually abusing me, and it was, as far as I know, it's just me and maybe one or two other cousins, but it was not this cousin who I spoke with. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you can't tell grandma, like this will kill her. And I was 20 at the time, 19, 20. Mm-hmm. And this responsibility was put onto me to not burden grandma with the truth. And so here I am now about to publish this book and that is in there. Mm -hmm. And so I spoke with a friend of mine, Lisa, who she was like, it's not your responsibility to protect your grandma. Absolutely. She's a grown woman. She can handle herself and you were a child and you weren't protected. Right. So putting all that into perspective and, you know, you probably saw one of the things I posted during this whole, uh, trying to promote my book to get the Kickstarter support and pre-orders was like a part of me doesn't fear being rejected by my family because in a way it feels like I already have been, I am limited in a way by my own perspective for better or worse. I see the world, how I see it. And I internalize their actions or inaction the way that I did. And so I already feel like they've rejected me. So in a way it's like, oh, well, what are you going to do? Reject me when my book comes out? Like you already have. So I don't have to be bound by how it's going to land on you. Mm-hmm. I am bound by, again, the accountability to myself and my story and knowing that truth is what sets us free and will set me free. So with all of that as kind of a backdrop, it was hard to relive sexual violence and trauma and Leah from our book club was one of my beta readers. And she's the one who pointed out how I needed to talk more about, like from her perspective, you know, she's like, I think you need to talk more about the relationships you had, like boyfriends. Mm -hmm. And she was like, because that shows, so even that shows our grooming as women or uh, people who present as women or identify as women within uh, a patriarchal society (laughs) and Mm -hmm. how we are groomed into these relationships. And so I added more about relationships, but on that note, I decided to include some stories about when I was the one who cheated on some really sweet guys who did not deserve that. And so for me, again, I've decided to put those because I want to be a more complex and nuanced human because I am, Mm -hmm. but also I don't want to paint myself as this perfect victim or act like I was only ever a victim. It's like, no, sometimes I hurt people too. And I'm grieved by that, but I'm doing what I can to repair that. And so, yeah, I mean, one of the guys that I dated right before I dated Steven, who I'm now married to cheating on him 
all my cheating that I did, I never told anyone about it. It was this like shame that I carried and no one can know this. Mm -hmm. But before Steven and I dated, I told him Mm -hmm. and just telling him and him not shaming me, him having, before we even had the language we have now about curiosity and compassion, Mm -hmm. him having so much compassion for me. And I think so much of it pins back to the things, the misbeliefs, I held about myself and the misbelief burdens that I carried and how I viewed myself. And so living from those things rather than living from the truth of who I am. And in a way it felt like Steven, the way he saw me, I wanted to be who he saw me as, you know, I wanted to live into the the beautiful things he saw about me, uh, not externally, but internally and cultivating those things. So that was, that was hard to write about though, to admit that, yes, like I cheated on these guys and no one knew that because I wanted to project this good girl persona, which I think hinges right back to, if I can't tell the truth about these parts of myself and want to hide those, then I'm not helping anyone. And I'm perpetuating the same problems that these institutions do where it's like you have a brand and an image and you want to just cultivate that. And it's like, I, I want to be a full person who made mistakes in my past because I don't know anyone who consistently makes wise decisions in their thirties, forties, fifties. So why would I have expected myself at 17, 18, 19 to make consistently wise decisions, not to excuse the harm I did, but again, to approach it with curiosity and compassion so that I can bring healing to those places. Mm, What a perfect answer, especially. Okay. Yes. My IFS heart is like leaping as you talk about curiosity and compassion and whatever decisions you were making. I tell my clients this all the time, like whatever decisions you're making at any given point, you are always literally trying to take care of yourself. You're trying to meet some kind of a need. And sometimes in that process, you hurt yourself. And sometimes in that process, other people are hurt. You get to have compassion for, for younger Nikki though, right? Mm-hmm. You get to say, girl, we were just trying to, we were just trying to survive, we try, trying to find love, trying to find belonging. And sometimes we do that incorrectly. So I love just even hearing you talk about your own journey. And we do kind of have that shame, right? Because nobody talks about the bad things that they do. That's w- more of what we need because we're, we're not one dimensional beings. You know, we're very complex. And so to read a book where you are able to share, you know, yeah, these are the things that happened. This is, this is kind of who I became as a result of, and this is what I've learned. Can you give listeners a little bit of, of what started to kind of turn inside of you to leave, to depart from your church, you know, being a baby, growing up in the church, getting, getting married, what, what was happening in, in your life? If you can just whatever you want to share on that. Yeah. Well, I think, like I said, I was 20 when I got married, we went on our honeymoon. I couldn't even drink alcohol at the winery or is what we call it like a vineyard winery mm-hmm. that we went to, you know, cause I'm 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing is like in that culture and, you know, and if we can talk about red flags, you know, this is kind of one of them. It's like what women get reduced to. And so Stephen never treated me these ways, but we were both deeply influenced by teachings about women that, yeah, again, just like reduce you to this baby making machine. And so it's like, while I'm only 20 and still just on the cusp of adulthood myself, I'm being expected to get married and to produce progeny, right? Like I just have all the babies. And so 
there became all of this distrust of myself, uh, which I already didn't have a good foundation for trusting myself because of everything from my childhood. But then you get, I got sucked into this environment where they felt like this family to me. And I, then, then it's kind of all the things I already believe about myself, got a theology put to them, right? Like total depravity. And so you can't trust yourself. And it's like, that is not the message a survivor of trauma and assault needs to hear at all. You know? So it's like, I was getting all the messages that I was primed to hear. They just weren't the messages I needed to hear for my healing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so along the way, I had a friend who got involved with be the bridge. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that led me to seeing white supremacy and how I upheld that. And that was kind of the first step for me towards a new life is because once I could see how I, as a white woman bought into and perpetuated white supremacy. And then I was listening to black women and they were speaking to the intersectionality of being not just women and what they experienced, but being black women and what they're experiencing. And so it was kind of like, you know, when people talk about the one Jenga block or the thread, like being pulled for me, that was racism and white supremacy. Once that pulled and once I put on that and realized, oh, I was wrong about all of this. Then it became like, what else am I wrong about? And I think that only because I had someone showing me how to question and to not like, she was already going to therapy with an IFS therapist, all these things. So it was that, that piece of curiosity and compassion and realizing, oh, certainty is not where to land, but rather a questioning. And so I could ask, well, what else am I wrong about? And so as I asked, what else am I wrong about? <laughs> turns out I was wrong about a lot of things. And I can tell I was wrong about them because of the fruit those things produced in my life and in the lives of the people around me. You know, Christians love to quote that, like, you'll know them by their fruits, but then it's like, we're not even really examining the fruit of our toxic beliefs mm -hmm. that we can see playing out on main stage week after week after week with the violence that we see are rooted in these white supremacist ideologies, which are they're rooted in white evangelicalism, you know? So it's like seeing all those things. Right. And so it was kind of my journey towards understanding all those things. I'm a super hopeful person. So I also thought, well, everyone else wants to know this too. <laughs> Mm -hmm. which is not true. Not everyone else is ready to shed those things that, you know, just the language of selfishness is how I used to view certain things I did. And now if I want to approach that with curiosity and compassion to what you were saying, I can be like, oh, this is a self-protective human mm -hmm. reaction. Mm -hmm. So now I'm like, oh, they were defensive because their way of life is literally being challenged with what I'm coming with about white supremacy, about patriarchy, about the Bible, about whatever the thing is. They're very human lizard brain, like he's just set, to, you know, and I am not trained in ways to help calm that. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so that was a big part of it. And so I, I sat down, I talked with the lead pastor at the church that I was part of uh, to talk about, like I emailed about stuff with racism, white supremacy, and then sat down with him and wanted to bring up stuff about the patriarchy in the church. Mm -hmm. And I just really thought he is going to want to partner with me. Mm -hmm. He's going to want to really, like, I believe the best of it. deeply skeptical about people, which is rooted in my experience. But there's mm -hmm. also a part of me that's deeply hopeful as well. And thinks I see the best in you and what you can be like, don't you want to be that? Mm -hmm. And so 
uh, long story short, that meeting did not go well. And six months later we left the church and obviously a lot happened (laughs) during that, a lot of little steps towards reconnecting Mm -hmm. and having an embodied faith. Mm. And there's just not like, I can't say enough about embodiment and learning to trust myself. Mm. And a lot of things happened during that six months between being directly spiritually abused Mm. and then finally getting a follow-up meeting six months later and being able to tell him, this is how you harmed me. I was gaslit. More things were said to and about me by him. And then that was kind of it. Like I could no longer stay there. I had too much had happened in that six months. And I knew that I did not deserve that type of mistreatment. And so I came into my closet, hyperventilate and cry during that meeting thing emerged back out there and was able to say like our time at the church is over. You broke trust with me and you've done little to nothing to acknowledge that and repair that trust. So I can no longer submit to your leadership. Cause of course, in these environments, submission to church leaders is kind of the, the hallmark. And so I was like, I, I don't trust you. I'm not submitting to you. <laughs> And he told us, well, if we, if we see each other still want to say, Hey, and see how the kids are doing it after 10 years of faithful service to the church, he didn't say, Oh, we don't want to lose y'all when, and people like, you know, I've kind of left this out. Like Stephen and I, we did so much for the church. We'd been there from the beginning, or I'd been there from like the very first Sunday and Stephen came a little bit after me. And so it's like, you're, you're willing to lose faithful church members mm-hmm. because you have too much pride. Like Mm. you're not asking, oh, wow, can you help me understand better what I did and how I can make it right? You're not asking like, are you sure there's nothing we could do differently to change your mind? You're like, oh, good luck. Like if we, if we see you want to say, Hey, with all that departing a a high control institution, uh, which, you know, my grandma called a cult to, to like before I, like when I was like first starting at the church and I was like, I guess you don't live to be almost a century and not learn a thing or two about cults. Mm-hmm. Um, but with all that, you know, the existential podcast with Corey Leak, he actually interviewed Kelly Matlock, who is in our book club and, and Kelly's mm-hmm. husband, Dan, And it was Dan who said the church too often uses belonging like a weapon. Mm. So here I was, all I wanted was belonging and I couldn't find that in my family. So I looked to this church and I thought I had it with this church. And then I started to realize how conditional that belonging really was and that to, to belong, you have to stay in line and not, not rock the boat. And so, yeah, when I left that church, I realized, oh, I don't belong. And I knew I wasn't going to because of the people who left before me, but it really hit me hard. And there was this disorientation around that. I was distressed. I felt displaced. Like there went my whole community for the 10 years of my adulthood, (laughs) you know, like it's all gone. Cause I started there when I was 19 left when I was 29. Mm. And so after a decade of faithful service, it really just seemed like Stephen and I didn't matter. And really between the two of us, we fulfilled every volunteer role imaginable. Stephen worked for the church, uh, in multiple capacities. And then it felt like the church as a whole just turned its back on us. And there were really only a handful of people who even reached out to us. And it's ironic for a church that really prides itself on community mission and care, you know, and I'm not, I'm at this point, I'm not even bitter pointing out the irony in it. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I'm using irony correctly, actually, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's just that you're saying you pride yourself on being a church that cares, but, and and on community, but look what happened to us and you're, you're not giving us much care. 
you know? And so it's like, God is gentle with me. And so I want to be gentle with those people who literally they're just, they're doing what they were taught to do. And I did it to people too. When they left, Mm -hmm. I perpetuated again, those same things, which I want to own that. That doesn't take away the sting of feeling that exclusion of people that you just have all this tender care for. And the norm for people who left the church was they would just disappear quietly. Mm -hmm. But by the time I left, I was not going to just disappear quietly. Like I said, a lot had changed in that six months. Now, if I had left when, when the pastor first spiritually abused me, what, which I I couldn't, I couldn't even think about it back then. But if I had, I probably would have been silent. I probably wouldn't have said anything after I left, but so much had changed to where I was like, "Mm, I'm going to tell my story. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like there was this high staff turner. There was this culture of secrecy at the church. When we disrupted that we, in some ways it became like we were the bad guys, (laughs) you know? And yeah. And just one story to illustrate that was that we had some friends who left the church. Uh, They were going to be moving and I wanted to make scrapbooks for them. And we were no longer at the church, but the party, their going away party was going to be at the church. And I was like, well, I'm not going to that because, you know, triggering to go back to that place, Mm -hmm. but I still want to do these scrapbooks for them. And so there, there was a Facebook event created for the party. And then another friend of mine was credited with the idea of doing the scrapbooks. So that friend reached out to me and was like, I told them it was you. I don't know why they credited me with doing the scrapbooks. I'm going to reach out to them and let them know to take my name off of that and put yours. It was changed to this generic. We will be making scrapbooks for uh, these friends. And so that was when I realized, oh, they're not even going to name us anymore. Like Harry Potter, he shall not be named. You know, all that stuff is what it felt Mm -hmm. like. And right. And just seeing how our transparency with our small group about why we left And anyone else who would reach out to me, I was transparent, but rather than meeting that with truth, a culture of secrecy is like, "Mm, well, the reasons they left are confidential. And then it became like this, and we're going to treat them like they're invisible. Like they Mm -hmm. no longer existed. We're not going to name them anymore. So Mm -hmm. that's just one story (laughs) of other things that happened where Mm -hmm. this community that I once belonged to just feeling this ostracization from them and this, like, you're not one of us anymore. What, what what did your support look like? What were there? Did you have other supports, even like online supports and people that you were following that were keeping you encouraged? Yeah. So when we first left, (laughs) we jumped right into another church uh, because that was just kind of, that was what we knew was church. Mm -hmm. So in January, 2019, we left the one church and we jumped into this other church, but it was kind of a mega church. Mm -hmm. And in some ways it was, it was a nice respite because we weren't expected to serve. We just had to show up. So we went from 10 years of hustling to, we get to just come and receive. And I think it was the right move in a way. Uh, we got to just go and be a part of the thing, but you kind of disappear into the sea of faces and then you just leave. But through that, uh, like my friend who I said had started IFS and mm-hmm. therapy or had a therapist who used IFS. She was such a support for me and her and her family. They went to this church that we started going to and they hosted a small group. And so I was ready to like jump back into the small group. And Steve was like, oh, I don't know, you know? Yeah. So I went here and there. And then that summer is when I created my broadening the narrative mm-hmm. Instagram page. And that led to me connecting with some people who, were like-minded and who had experienced similar things that I experienced and were on a similar journey. Uh, And then eventually, I believe it would have been January, 2021. 
is when we started attend. Oh, so that same year, 2019, mm-hmm. we left that one church because the people that we met with there at that church were just not trauma informed. So when I shared my story with some people from the care team, and I want to be gracious and say that these were just two people who they did not have the training. If I had met with people on staff, I think it would have gone differently, but I was just paired up with two lay people from the care team and they did not have the capacity or know how to hold the space for my story. Mm. And it was further traumatizing. And so we left that church after nine months there and then we just didn't go to church. And again, that was disorienting because it's like, who are we if we don't have like a membership card to a church? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And then fast forward to meeting Amy Katie in, on Facebook, I'm sorry, Instagram and connecting with her and exchanging some messages. And in January, 2021, I reached out to her and I was like, I knew her husband was pastor. So I said in Hawaii and, you know, I live in South Carolina, but I was like, do you live stream your services? And she said, well, we have a zoom call. She sent me the link and we've tuned in almost every Sunday since then, but Mm -hmm. not in this obligatory way, because I had decided during that time period, Mm -hmm. I decided love will be my only motivation for returning to church. It will not be shame. It will not be guilt. It will not be a manipulation of any kind. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be yeah, a, a fear of any way. So I was at a point where I was like, love alone, not love coupled with any of these things. Cause I did love the people who I had been in church with before, but it was like love plus fear, love, plus, which I know, I know mm-hmm. perfect love cast out fear, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, I did love these people. This is real life. Yeah. Yeah. And so then it was like, okay, love alone is going to compel me to return whenever that is. And I didn't put a timetable on it. And so in January, 2021 tuned in and, you know, there's some weeks that Stephen watches, but I might just peripherally be listening, mm-hmm. but pastor David, Amy's husband, he invited me to share my story during the month of April when my Kickstarter was running, mm-hmm. he invited me to share my story with the congregation there. And it was so beautiful when he said, if Nikki ever had to write a book about this church, <laughs> Mm. Uh, I would hope that we could have soft hearts to receive what she had to say, (laughs) you know, and it wasn't Mm -hmm. this like just having again, and he was, he was a therapist before, and it just shows through, you can tell the people who are actually meant to shepherd and pastor and who care. Mm -hmm. And so it's been such a healing experience to be part of that church and have the community there, even though they're in Hawaii, I feel like they are offering so much to us in way of allowing me to speak on that Sunday morning about my story, but also David and Amy scheduling calls with us one-on-one. And so offering their presence via zoom to us one-on-one, or when we had COVID in our house, door dashing us food, showing up for us in ways that I thought could only happen if you were in this brick and mortar building together and Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, we'll probably never be in the building together, but for however long we're part of the well, Hawaii, they are just glad to have us be with them. So that's been really healing. Oh, that is so beautiful. And then I'm, I'm also curious, but you use the term embodied faith. And I just thought that is so beautiful. When you think about what it means to have an embodied faith, what comes to mind? I think even the way that you started us off before we were recording by paying attention to my body and what's what I'm feeling in my body mm-hmm. is a very new practice for me because I was so disconnected from my body for so long. And so an embodied faith for me looks like 
connecting with my body, connecting with the earth, being outside (laughs) and letting my bare feet be in the ground or in my hammock, in the breeze, connecting with my body and, and cherishing my body, you know, because for so long in the toxic theology, there's this, like the body is bad and put it to death, you know, like all these things and this asceticism versus cherishing my body and loving my body. And so embodiment plus the faith aspect is learning to trust myself and to ask, well, if Jesus said, I came that you would have life and that it would be abundant, learning to trust that if the data my body is giving me and my friend, Danielle Stocker talks about take the data. And she's my friend who was kind of there for me through all of this journey talks about take the data that your body is giving you and make decisions based off the data. And so it's like, now that I'm healing myself, now that I'm trusting myself and embodied faith looks like being able to say, what is the fruit this is producing, trusting that. And to be able to say, well, if Jesus came to give us life and that would be abundant, if this thing I'm doing, or this thing that I'm being expected to participate in is not bringing life, I don't want that to be part of my journey. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I can walk away from that. And again, toxic or not, like it's not bringing me life. It might bring life to someone else, but it's not bringing me life. And so just seeing the Bible in different ways, interacting with it in different ways and applying it to my life in ways that I didn't before. And again, one step closer to on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't know what heaven is anymore. (laughs) I have no idea, but I know it's not this shit show that we see around us now. And so it's just being able to stay one step closer on earth as it is in heaven. And this influence that I have around me, I'm going to internally dismantle systems of oppression and around me dismantle systems of oppression. All of that was just, it just resonated so deeply. I just wanted you to keep on talking. It was so good. (laughs) I want to talk about belonging. Nikki, when you think about true belonging, what do you know for sure? Uh, So yeah, so true belonging means that you don't have to change who you are for the comfort of others when you're living from your true self, your truest self. That's been so much of my journey, you know, is connecting back to who I really am at my core. If I have to change those things about myself, then I don't actually belong. It was a conditional acceptance to begin with. And I just don't want that anymore. And can I say the movie Encanto Mm-hmm. is what really unlocked for me my longing to belong and gave a, a name to it. I was crying so much during that movie because I ended up realizing like as much as I had already been talking and writing about how I missed the built-in support and community of a church, I hadn't examined why I missed it really. I hadn't gotten down into my longing to belong. And so I can now see that, oh, that was a conditional acceptance that I had there. And so while I miss the built-in community in a way, I don't miss the control that was tried that they tried to exercise over me or things like that. And it's like, how do I find my way to people who have the space for me to show up as all of who I am, as long as that is not harming someone, right? Like, let me put that condition on that, uh, not actually harming someone, uh, which is different from calling out someone who is doing harm, you know, all, you, you know, the caveats there. <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, if you're open to it or if you, if you even have the energy to it, but I was wondering if you would want to read a little bit, like an excerpt from your book. Yes, I can do that. I can 
read just the very beginning, sort of a, a little intro to it that opens us. Well, you'll see. Okay. No, you aren't going to pigeonhole me, put me in a box and label me a sexist. I'm not answering your questions. Try to imagine these statements from a pastor that you thought respected and cared for you. Jake's dark brown eyes were narrowed on me. These were the same eyes that wrinkled with laughter in my presence a decade ago. His pointer finger drove home the harsh accusation he hurled at me. I'd privately rehearsed this meeting ad nauseum using the 11 pages of notes I now clutched close. It never went like this when I played it out in my head. Stunned, I stuttered, but you know me. Why would you think that? And you know me, he retorted, refusing to provide an answer. Well, I thought I did. After faithfully investing all my adulthood at entrenched church, I couldn't believe what my pastor was saying. He was the same pastor who did my premarital counseling, performed my wedding ceremony, and showed up for me after a fire at my apartment. For nine years and seven months, I tried to be a joy to lead, just as Jake had preached was the responsibility of a church member. Assuming we'd formed a mutual friendship, I'd expected him to engage with me as an equal. Instead, our interaction was humiliating. My cheeks burned. My thoughts scrambled. To make matters worse, I was on the verge of hyperventilating. How could he treat me this way? Not yet understanding spiritual abuse, my gut reaction was I felt unsafe and needed to leave the situation. This would become another situation where I rued my snubbing of the nudges from within to get out. However, I continued sitting in Jake's office with my husband, Stephen, for a few more hours on that humid South Carolina summer night in July 2018. There was too much at stake to leave the room, much less consider leaving Entrench. My entire existence was wrapped up in the congregation there, the people who had become family to me. They had offered me acceptance, but I was beginning to understand exactly how fragile their acceptance was. It would be months before I realized it. But I'd neglected the pursuit of my own dreams to function as an add-on to Jake's dream of building his church. It would be even longer before I realized that neglecting myself was a pattern born out of codependency and a desire to belong. Never underestimate the power of belonging. Belonging often brings safety, and safety ensures survival. With one foot shuffling in front of the other, I began the work of reconnecting with the pieces of who I was before I exchanged my budding sense of self for dignity robbing theology. Stay or leave, that was the question that vexed me for months following my first experience being directly abused by the uh, by the pastor, Jake. Could I trust myself enough to walk away from toxic relationships and religion? Was it worth it? Was I worth it? I'm so excited to read. Uh, as familiar as family and for listeners to connect with you. How can they support your work and even connect with you on social media? Yes. Well, I'm most active on Instagram and that's at broadening the narrative. I'm also on Twitter at broad narrative and have a Facebook group for broadening the narrative. And then I have a podcast broadening the narrative podcast. And like I said, I just had a website that I have created Nikki Pappas.com. Nikki It has just been such an honor to have you on. For all of you that are listening, please go and follow, look for Broadening the Narrative podcast. Uh, You'll find my my episode with, with Nikki where she interviewed me. It's amazing. Just know that this interview out of, it'll be what, a little over 50 that I've done by the time this comes out. It's literally one of my favorites. It's, it's at the top. Like you have touched my heart so deeply and I'm just so proud of you yeah thank you I received that and I agree that your episode on my podcast was one of my favorites and that I share with people (laughs) thank you so much Nikki thank you
Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.